0: Open your Bible to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. In this passage we'll be looking at today, we realize that we are now in the final week of our Lord's life and his public ministry. The end of this week, this one we're reading about here, will be the cross and the resurrection. So one way to look at our journey through this book is that we only have one week left in this gospel. But it will probably take us a number of months before we get to the end. This week begins with his arrival in Jerusalem. The year is about 30 A.D. It is the Passover week of that year. The month is the Jewish month called Nisan. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, which we will cover today, is on the 10th of the month, and the crucifixion is on the 14th. God has established a very firm timetable for these events, and Jesus is aware of it. The passage for today is what is commonly known as the triumphant uh, entry, or triumphal entry. When you read your Bibles, you'll discover that there are not many events that appear in all four Gospels, but this is one of those events. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a tendency of recording similar events, but each with a different perspective. John records some of the same events from a different perspective, but also includes many others. And so when you begin to look at your Bible, you're going to see that there are some events that are recorded in one gospel that may not be recorded in another, but some things are recorded in all four. For example, Jesus' baptism is found in all four gospels, or the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. When Jesus came to Gethsemane, that is found in all four gospels. You'll see that his trials and his crucifixion and his death and burial, his resurrection, all of those are found in all four Gospels. And this event we're looking at today is an event which is also found in all four Gospels. The triumphant entry. It's found here in Mark chapter 11, in Matthew 21, in Luke 9, as well as John chapter 12. Each one gives a little bit different perspective. And this is his last major public appearance before he dies. So now that you know what we'll be reading, I invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 11. And we'll start at verse 1 and go through verse 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, And Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut on the field's. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that you have given your word to us to teach us, to guide us, and help us know you and what is good and right. Let your spirit come among us today and allow us to understand the significance of this moment in the life of our Lord and what it means for us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've spent much time in the church throughout your life, this is not only a passage that you are familiar with, but it's likely one of the passages that you've heard preached quite a few times. Probably on a Palm Sunday, as most every church has started its annual remembrance of Easter week, the most important week in the church calendar with a spotlight of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Weeks ago, we saw that Jesus had given the disciples a foreshadowing of the things to come. We saw that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus uh, told his disciples what was to come. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That was their Jerusalem itinerary. Their journey was leading them to a cross where Jesus would die. And the location of that cross was Jerusalem. And that timing of the crucifixion was right about now. Here in chapter 11, after their long journey, both in distance traveled and in terms of their three-year ministry, they've made it. They've reached the end as they make their final descent into Jerusalem. You see, in a sense, what we celebrate as the triumphal entry is anything but triumphal as his arrival in Jerusalem will mark the end of his pre-resurrected life and ministry. Not too many people who know that they are about to die feel triumphant. But this is essentially what is happening to Jesus from the moment he enters Jerusalem. And And in hindsight, we know that Christ would be resurrected and that his kingdom would spread throughout the world, the disciples at this time have no guarantee, assuming they even understand what's going on, that when Jesus is killed, what will happen to them? This entrance into Jerusalem is like the point of no return. And this last week of Jesus' earthly life will be overwhelmingly difficult for his entire entourage. This section is named by the Bible publishers, the triumphant entry. We observe that when a sports team wins a championship, there is confetti, cameras, lights, lots of glitter. The following day, the team parades through the middle of the city, and you have fans Worshipping them, worshiping the players, praising them, thanking them for bringing the glory back to their city. Today, we see a celebration, but the celebration lacks the charisma and flair of a costlier or expensive parade. It's hardly spectacular. It begins with a donkey, and it ends with darkness. At the same time, it carries more value than any high-priced championship ring. It's something far greater, far more lasting than any human could accomplish. See, upon this event that they call the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem lies the fate and hope of all mankind. In our passage today, we see that Jesus comes to bring salvation as our humble king. Verse 1 As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, we'll stop there. This verse tells us that Jesus is entering into Bethpage. That's a small village just outside and opposite the village of Bethany. According to John chapter 11, verse 8, Bethany was located two miles outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus and his men are now in an area called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is located just east of the city of Jerusalem, and he's about to finish the work that he has set out to perform. He's about to lay down his life to redeem the world. Why is this the last stop on Jesus' journey? Well, history shows us that there were many radical Jewish activists that sought to free the nation of Israel from the command of the Roman Empire. So Jesus knew that as he was teaching and as he was healing and as he was gaining followers, some of them, well, most of the religious and political leaders of Israel, would perceive him as a radical activist, He knew that this would inevitably cause friction with those leaders, leading to a plot to assassinate him. Knowing this as the Son of God, Jesus wants to avoid a premature death. He wants to proclaim the gospel, train his disciples, and then give up his life at the opportune time. And so, since Jesus never went to Jerusalem before, the Pharisees and the scribes went to him. As we recall in chapter 3, the scribes came up challenging Jesus' authority of casting out demons. And we read in chapter 7, they accused Jesus and his disciples morality and why they don't follow the Jewish laws of clean and unclean. In chapter 12, we're going to see That they come to challenge him about taxes. The reason why the Jewish leaders of that day wanted to stop Jesus was because they felt threatened by his authority, his new direction for God's people. They really thought that Jesus was an extremist and that he was going to lead a revolution and that Jesus was going to recruit an army and bear arms. Some of the disciples had the same idea. And this is why in John chapter 11, verse 50, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said, It is better for one man to die than the whole nation perish, even if that means we crucify an innocent man. Because one of the worst things you can do as a subordinate nation to your superior ally is to cause a revolution an act of anarchy. And so the Jewish scribes and Pharisees wanted to shut down any political threat to their peace, to their comfort, to their understanding of how to be an independent nation. You see, the Pharisees and scribes had a problem. More than acknowledging their need of a Savior... They decided that they would save themselves with their own knowledge, with their own reason, with their own power, and their own influence. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 32, it's the first verse that says Jesus began towards Jerusalem. It reads that Jesus was walking ahead of the disciples, and they were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. You see, even his disciples thought that it was time to break free. It was no surprise while Peter brings a sword with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember that. They thought it was time to draw arms and install Jesus as king. But Jesus had made it very clear that he had a different purpose. Jesus knew exactly why he came. As a matter of fact, he makes it very clear various times as he shares concerning his purpose. And that was that he had come to lay down his life. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In Matthew 20.28 20, he says, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ came with a purpose, and it was to lay down his life for the redemption of the world. He wasn't murdered. He laid down his life voluntarily, and he did so as what is referred to in Scripture as a sin offering. John 10, 14 to 15, he explains. This is what we read as the scripture reading today. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he knew why he came. He came to lay his life down. He came to seek and save that which was lost. See, the Bible teaches very clearly that all mankind is guilty. It's guilty of sin and desperately in need of a Savior. We see this in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Chapter 7, verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We see, there is not one person on the face of the earth who's perfect. That's the point. Not one. All are guilty of sin. We see this echoed by Paul in Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a single person who is alive who doesn't sin. And so we're in need of redemption. We're in need of salvation. We're in need of being rescued. So to save us, God sent his son to take our place as an atoning sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is about to lay down his life for the sheep voluntarily. He said it in John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What human being could have killed Jesus if Jesus had resisted? None. He laid his life down. So he's coming to do that in our text today. He is now finishing the task that he has been sent to perform. So before entering into Jerusalem, he stops at a small village, and there he sends two of his disciples out on an errand. Jesus, we read again in our text through verse 3. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a coat there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. So he sends them. He says, go to this village opposite you. Matthew adds a detail found in chapter 22, verse 2 of his gospel. that says, Jesus said, you'll find a donkey tied with a, and a colt with her. But what Jesus is about to do right now, he, was, he is about to receive public adulation open worship of himself. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Mark up to this time, Jesus has been basically discouraging public honor. For example, in Mark 1, verse 44, Jesus had cleansed a leper. And after cleansing the leper, if you'll remember, he spoke to him and said, "'See that you say nothing about this to anyone.'" But go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer your cleansing for those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But don't say anything to anyone. In John 7, 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So in spite of the danger he now determines to enter Jerusalem. His time has arrived, and is now, now is the proper time for him to receive open honor. He gives his disciples a simple order to find the colt waiting for him and to bring it to him. Verse 4 through 7 They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing? Untying that colt. They answered, as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. This was prearranged. Someone may observe, clearly the owner of that colt was a disciple, because at once he gave it up. He gave up his property when the message was repeated. The Lord has need of him. So that allows the disciples to bring the colt to Jesus without sparking interest. Notice how it says, the Lord has need of them. The word, the Lord, speaks of the proprietor of all things. The owner of everything has need of the donkey and the colt. To fulfill prophecy... In order to humbly enter Jerusalem, he needs what you have. Notice that Jesus didn't make it as a demand. Instead, he made it as a request. And it says, the Lord has need. That word, need, speaks of necessity. He has a need, a necessity. And through this simple exchange, God's word is being fulfilled. Jesus was not afraid of what was about to happen. He knew his enemies would arrest him. He knew he was going to be taken. But he still sent them, nonetheless, to fulfill the prophecy. They found the colt tied at the door. People did ask them, what are you doing? They gave the answer that Jesus had supplied them, and they were allowed to go. Now, why did Jesus need animals? The animals were needed to enable Jesus to enter Jerusalem in a manner conforming to prophetic requirements worthy of a Messiah. You'll see in the Matthew account, it reveals that a prophecy by Zechariah was fulfilled. Zechariah was written five centuries before Christ. So we look at Zechariah 9.9 where Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesied concerning Messiah. Jesus is fulfilling that. If, If these people would not have done what Jesus said, that prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Simple obedience and the will of God is revealed. And he's going to come meek, Filled with kindness and compassion. Even towards those who are plotting his destruction. Jesus has come, come to do his father's will. In John 4, 50, uh, 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he also added, Came that he might fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he comes on a donkey. The donkey represents his rule, humble and gentle. When a king came in peace, he would come on a donkey. So Jesus was coming in peace. But if a king came upon a horse, that was associated with coming in war. We see that in Revelation 19, where it speaks of it that way. Revelation 19:11 11 it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus came the first time on a donkey, coming in peace with humility. The next time, he'll return as the judge to make war. Now, this is important that at this particular time, Jesus clearly describes who he is. Because what we have seen Jesus do throughout this gospel up until now, he's typically trying to keep his identity as the Son of God hidden Don't tell anybody who I am, he said. And yet here, the messianic secret is over. The messianic secret comes to an end at this moment. The entrance screamed, I am the Messiah, to a Jewish people who are waiting for this precise event. Verses 8 through 10. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives and he is and as he's walking down there are people who are pouring in from the city of Jerusalem and there are people following him the whole of this account from the vantage of all four gospels tells us this john 12 12 through 13 says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees And went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So there are people pouring out from the city, as there are others that are coming out with him from outside the walls. And these two crowds, the one from the city and the one with him, begin to merge, and they are throwing those palm branches. And that's why it's referred to as Palm Sunday. There are palm branches that are being thrown out there as Jesus is coming, riding on this donkey. And they're rejoicing. They're praising God with a loud voice, according to Luke 19.37, for the almighty works that they have seen. When Jesus was entering into Jerusalem and coming down these small streets... All of these pilgrims were pressing up against the walls so that he could come on his donkey through them. They were yelling at the top of their voices, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're so enthusiastic as this is taking place. They sing Hosanna, which literally means save now. That's what Hosanna means. It means save now. But by this time, it had also become a word used just to praise God, because they knew that he would follow through on what he had promised. But either way, the crowd was attributing saving power to Jesus. They were associating his work with the very work of God. Now, in addition, they declare what turns out to be song lyrics. You see, these people aren't just shouting, they're singing. They're singing from one of the traditional psalms associated with the Passover festival, which is taking place. And that is Psalm 118, 25 and 26, which says, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. Sounds familiar. This Psalm 118 is one of the psalms or one of the songs that these pilgrims, these crowds would be singing that week at the Passover. And here they are directing these words, these ancient words, at the one who they were actually written about. Think about that. Imagine one day we will sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, or great is thy faithfulness in the presence of the physical Christ. When we worship, we are always in the presence of God, singing to him. And I encourage you always to be aware of that. But I imagine that singing, to God be the glory, or come thy fount of every blessing, may present a different experience when we are staring into the eyes of our risen Savior. What a joy that will be. And that is what is happening here. These people who had sung this psalm their whole lives about an abstract hero that would one day come were looking at him directly as they sang this time. Isn't that amazing? Their reactions were right. And he is the king. And while they treated him as such, while they were right about who he was, They were totally wrong about what he had come to do. Verse 11, our final verse for today. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what happened to all the noise? What happened to all the shouts and songs of praise? You see, for those even there, they thought there was nothing left to see. It was a momentary celebration. But for Jesus, there was a deep introspection where the very situation compels a grave observation that would prepare him for the events of the coming week. And that point, where he would die on the cross, separated from God. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple represented God's presence with his people. And here is Jesus in the temple, which represented God's presence with his people, reflecting on what it would finally take to finish the work that he had come to do. As one commentator says, This is the quiet before the storm. Brothers and sisters at Sovereign Grace Bible Church, today we get a glimpse at the humble heart of Jesus. We see a king that has the authority to command angels coming as a servant, riding on a docile and humble donkey to be inaugurated as the perfect sacrifice for sin. This is the introduction to the greatest event in history where sinners like you and me can be reconciled to a holy God. You know, some people ask, if God is so loving, why would he send people to hell? The answer is found right here in Mark 11. God is so loving that he sent his only son so that we may be saved from hell. So what are you looking for in life? What do you want to be thankful for? What do you wish you had? Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's relief from a stressful situation. Something in the experience of our day, sometimes in the experience of our day, we might feel like we are Peter or John in the middle of the boat with a storm swirling all around us and we're sinking and we're trying to frantically scoop out water from the boat. But Jesus tells us today that no amount of scooping can rid your stress, your anxious striving, and uncertainty in life. He wants you to understand that He is the God man that quiets the storm. He has come to give you hope, to give you that peace, that joy, that hope that can never waver, that lasts more than just for a moment. Have you ever thought about that when you think your life is coming apart? Jesus is always there, not just for a moment. Always, hope that is sure and certain, that goes beyond all suffering and pain, a hope that breaks through the darkness and sheds light upon you, a hope that even goes beyond death. It's because this hope is sealed by God Himself with the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been placed here for this time, and with the lives that He's given us, And it seems like we're not in control of much in this life. But there is someone who is in control. The all-powerful creator is the all-powerful savior. He is the one who placed us here for such a time as this. While you sleep, he's watching you. Jesus, in his perfect plan, provide himself as the way, the truth, and the life. There is a storm out there. Maybe there's a storm inside you. Trust in Jesus. He brings the peace. He quiets the storm. Let's pray. Father, as we read and listen to your story of the entrance into Jerusalem of your Son, Lord, help us to remember the depth of your love and your humble appearance. It's not spectacular, but it's lasting. Help us to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord over our lives. Lord, we need faith to believe in you. We need faith to trust in you. Lord, we're so weak and we're so fickle. In the midst of our own desires and difficult circumstances, Lord, give us faith to rise above and to trust in you. Help us to trust in no other kingdom than your everlasting kingdom. Help us to trust in your saving, forgiving, and everlasting peace during the storm. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.